and we're back. Seeking Wisdom's here. I never play the host or rarely play the host, but this is an exception to the rule. I'm here with Kyle York up in the wilderness, it seems there, of Manchester, New Hampshire. How's it going, Kyle? It's going great, DC. Good to see you. Good seeing you, man. It's been a long time. Can you tell the people about yourself, your background, and then I'll go yeah, to sure. Yeah, sure. So we've known each other from way back. I think you're form of all the HubSpot days, but I helped build a company up here in Manchester, New Hampshire called Dyne, uh, internet infrastructure company. was really early there, 15 people when I joined. You know, it's an internet infrastructure company, so you can imagine the founders are heavily technical. So I was brought in as a go-to-market leader, the first go-to-market leader, and was its chief revenue officer. We successfully scaled that company to 100 million ARR and sold to Oracle in late 2016. I then hung out at Oracle for three years, uh, actually learned a lot, enjoyed my experience. I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about the, the juxtaposition of startup life in big corporates and had a lot of success with the GM of the dime business there and helped run strategy for Oracle Cloud. And then in parallel with that, as you know, where we've crossed a lot of paths over the years, just do a lot of angel investing, advising, board stuff, obviously focused in New England a great deal. And I've recently launched a year ago, York IE, uh, which is our new uh, vertically integrated investment firm, which I'm, I'm sure we'll talk about that as well today. Nice. Uh, I see you have the shirt there. Yeah, I'm rocking the shirt. You know, I'm a big, big t-shirt. Oh, yeah, exactly. Is our t-shirt culture, man, right? That's awesome. So what year did you guys get to $100 million in revenue at Dine? Yeah, so it's kind of an interesting story. So Dime was actually founded in 01 and through from 01 to 08, got to about 3 million. And it was all D to C consumer. So they basically enabled you to name your home network. You know, you could do things like DC's house.com and you name your home router and do nerdy tech remote access things into this, right? Yeah, you did it, right? And, and you know, this is obviously before we had all our mobile devices and all that. It was real hot, right? So that's what I joined and what they realized, the founders, Jeremy and Tom, they realized that cloud computing became a thing. Web apps and websites were going to need to name servers and cloud instances. The domain name system, the DNS, was what we specialized in, was a great technology capability to do that. So they had actually built the enterprise version, but they didn't know what to do with it. It was like sitting on the shelf. And that was all right. That was 08. So from, I joined like officially January of 09, but really started in late 08 for free. You know, everyone has <laughs> those multiple months where they're forgetting to pay yeah. you and you're like, hey, remember me? And so, yeah, so we, from January of 09 till we we signed our definitive agreement in November of 16, uh, we went from three to 100. So it was wild. You know, we never had like the 300% growth rates or anything. Like we were always pretty methodically between like 40 and 80% growth. And it was yeah. like, it was a machine. And the, we used the consumer D2C engine, which a lot of people don't realize. We kind of turned that into like PLG before PLG, right? It was like, okay. we kind of said, hey, if you're using this at home, yeah, you're probably yeah. a nerd, you know, you should use this at work. And we actually scaled that to 25 million ARR of the 100 along the way. So we, and we use that as sort of a cash cow ATM machine to fund a lot of the business because as you know, we, we didn't raise any outside capital till we we're already 30 million ARR. So, you know, one of the best bootstrap stories I think we've got in tech. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. I, you know, I asked you what year, because it was like in 16, hundred was big money and product. You did a lot of stuff pretty early, like product led growth wasn't really a term that existed. You guys did that with the freemium model. There were so many early things, which is amazing to me, that story. 
I think about that, even the guys who founded it in their dorm room, like the way they embrace like e-com, like the original revenue was actually donation. You know, it wasn't even revenue. It was like, hey, if you guys want us to keep running dynedns.org, give us 10 bucks or whatever, right? And then that became recurring revenue. So they were like SaaS before SaaS, cloud before cloud, subscription business model before subscription business model. Even when I was building the go-to-market, I talk a lot about this with like Volpe and Roberge and you over the years, like Tom Wentworth, a lot of these guys, like there were no playbooks. There were no podcasts. There was no books. There was no blogs to follow. You kind of just made your own rules. And by doing that, I think you, you obsessed a little less on like the KPIs and the metrics and you focused more on creativity. And I think that was a big part of the Dyne brand story and the Dyne business model and the Dyne community we cultivated is it was like really different and unique and creative, which, you know, I always remind founders now, like focus on brand and be creative. Like the KPIs right. are great, but like don't lose the forest of the trees, right? Yeah, because so much of what made these stories happen is because we got creative, we made things up. And I think, you know, I started a company in 2000 and back in 2001 when Dyn started, that was still the era that people were telling me, no one's going to put a credit card online to yep. buy software. It's never going to happen. Definitely not a business. You know, we're going to buy books and stuff like that. Amazon, buy books and that kind of stuff. But no one's ever going to put a credit card online because we had tried to do a recurring revenue model when we didn't even know what it was called. We were calling it like, we're going to sell software via e-commerce. Like, right. Yeah. There was nothing, no such thing as SaaS. It was insane. Yeah. I always picture the Salesforce, like no software logo. Yeah. And I just, I laugh, right. I just like, like that's what I remember from that time. Like it's a big red, right. Yeah. Like, it yeah, it's, it's wild. And then, so the surprising thing to me was after you sold the business and I got to know you during that business, I can't remember when, I think I had met Corey, who was working there yeah. somehow, and I came up to Manchester and I was like blown away. Performable day, so it was probably like 2009 or 2010, something like that. And to this like amazing setup that you guys had up there kind of blew my mind. Yeah, a lot of us were from up here, you know, and had moved away, right? So I worked in California for a while, moved back home. I think like my first startup, like I think the reality is like, Manchester, New Hampshire is like an old mill town and it's on a river and it's got basically these like like millions and millions of square feet of mill buildings that it's like skyscrapers laying on their sides. These things mm -hmm. are enormous, right? And so a lot of like, you get so much, it was like five bucks a square foot per year or something for <laughs> the office space. And you know, you it's gone up a lot now. It's like maybe yeah. 20 bucks now or 25, but back then it was like these, these huge offices were empty and you could retrofit them super cheap. And it, but they were really just like lofts in New York or lofts in Boston yeah. or lofts yeah. in San Francisco. But everyone in New Hampshire was like, holy cow, you guys are innovating. It's like, nah, we're just copying other ecosystems and other cool companies. And, and I think we benefited because like the more traffic you had to your website, not the size of your company. Like we did market segmentation based on Alexa rank, right? Yep. Like, so we ended up working with the Twitters, the Netflixes, the P Pandoras, the Spotify's, the Airbnbs, the HubSpots, like, yeah, yeah. like the coolest brands were our customers. And we obviously very clearly tried to draft off that and learn from each other. And the space was one like physical example of that. Totally. I think one of the other things that blew me away when you guys were, you were one of the first examples of, a multi-layered sales model, right? A product-led growth consumer model, then an SMB model. And then I remember you guys going into the enterprise kind of later on. 
Yeah, exactly. And I mean, we, even in enterprise, right, we land and expanded there, right? We didn't, we didn't like say, hey, all of a sudden out of nowhere, our initial deal is going to be half a million dollars. Like that was just not going to happen. So we landed and expanded. I mean, the best story we actually have there, I love telling this. I don't tell very often because I'm probably not supposed to, but this is great. Oracle's first enterprise deal with us was 600 bucks a month. (laughs) <laughs> it, it was like a QA project for their like storage group, you know, their emerging cloud storage group, 600 bucks a month. When they acquired us, that thing was 950K ARR. And they gave us a pretty hit, nice, hefty multiple yeah. on our overall revenue. So I always laugh. It was like 600 bucks of MRR, right? So like eight grand a year. And then they grew to 900 and then they gave us, you know, a 10X our enterprise revenue. Right. It was like, it was like, wait a second, you just literally paid us with your own upsell ever. Yeah, best upsell ever. So, but that was the model, right? And it was it was not one upgrade to that. It was probably six, seven, eight upgrades over four or five years. And I I think it's what I always remind startups, it's like it's your go-to-market motion, it's your pricing and your go-to-market motion that determine like where you play. Market segmentation, I think the old school market segmentation is a real gotcha for a lot of startups if they're not careful. Say more about that. So how did you, because how did you learn to, most of this was organic, but now how do you think about creating a multi-segment model like you had, you know, this kind of Yeah, well, I mean, I think everybody nowadays can do this from the, like, I'm not an obsessor over PLG, but like generally digital inbound, self-service, self-inquiry, digital assist sales, like, like it's the DevOps movement, right? Like, like sell the practitioner, get them playing with the technology, like, like get it in their hands. And then someone human should eventually reach out. And I think it's a question mark of like, who that human is, right? Like traditionally, you know, we learned a lot about enterprise selling at Oracle, tops down, board, CIO level down. That does not work anymore unless you're selling something that off the shelf is a is a million dollar product displacing a million dollar product, right? So I think a lot of this really comes down to like knowing yourself, knowing the value price of your capability, knowing the practitioner really well and getting the technology in the hands of the practitioner in any way you can. Then obviously you have your BDR kind of inside sales, SMB mid-market model up to your field sales model. But even field sales these days, like, I mean, we're all remote. So I guess, I guess we're all field sales. So I think it's just an interesting dynamic. I always, always remind companies that like, your average selling price, your average ARR per customer needs to be able to, and the number of deals you can win needs to be able to support your quota model. So like, you know, you can't pay an enterprise field rep 400 grand a year, right? Mm -hmm. If their quota is 400 grand a year and their quota can't be a million to a year unless they can either close 12 100K deals or 24 50K deals or three 400K deals, right? And so I think it's just a lot of, I mean, at the end of the day, it's a lot of math, right? Well, but what's amazing to me is the the smartest founders, the smartest people working that we that you would work with, fail to do just back of the envelope math. It's a pretty simple model. It's like how many units you have to sell at what price to be able to pay whatever. It's simple. There's not you don't have to over complexify this this stuff and get lost in these models. And what data do you have yeah. that like gives you the assumptions and the inputs to the model that like make it make sense? I mean. 
like I all the time. I was just talking to a founder the other day, Boston startup, great startup, Martech. And he's like, we're going to start winning 500K a year deals. I'm like, your average is 40K a year right now. Like go win more 40K a year deals. And I would love it if you expand them to the 200K and to the 500K, but your go-to-market motion needs to be a go-to-market motion to win the 40K deal. And you need more net new logos. You're a million ARR, get more net new logos that you can expand later or else you're going to overfish the unstocked pond. (laughs) You're going to get caught out there, right? You need a whole new model, a whole new sales team, a whole new product, possibly, right? Before you've proven it out through a natural expansion motion. And this happens, and I'm sure you're even dealing with this a lot, like with your board and your investors, like as you have early success in like the bottoms up go to market and sort of like the down market, like lower ARR per customer. I mean, Dirty secret is like when we sold Dyn, our average ARR per customer was 18K, right? Mm-hmm. We had a $4 million deal, a few million dollar deals, yeah. a dozen 500K plus deals. But again, they all landed and expanded there. Yeah. But the overall customer base, what we re- like the real secret sauce of Dyn was the repeatable go to market motion to oh, the 18K a year. What is a little bit of a fool's errand, it happens a lot as you get more near the 100 million or plus. Mm-hmm. And you have like big money into your company and board members who've been there, done that. They're mostly retired. They basically sit there and they say, why aren't you enterprise yet? And why aren't you winning $250,000 deals? And they, they, I remember one board member talking to me about what they call like bluebird deals and how do you limit paying sales reps for bluebird deals? And I was like, well, explain what you mean. He's like, when we win million dollar deals, like how do you make sure your reps don't retire? And I'm like, we don't win million dollar deals. So that's not a problem. But, but again, I think this By is the a way, problem. they should get paid, right? That's they the whole should problem. get paid. That's the whole point. I know. And it's like, I should get paid too. Totally. Um, but yeah, but I mean, so I think they all tell you to go enterprise in the old school, like licensed software, like top down sales models that existed in the 80s and 90s and the beginnings of the 2000s. Like these, these models are just very different today. Unless you're workday. Right, selling like million dollar deals, then don't try to go build a go to market to go do that. That's very expensive and you'll burn a shitload of cash. But you know, it's just an interesting, it's a completely interesting dynamic and it's broken. Yeah. But it happens no matter what. I mean, in some ways, it's good. Like a board is going to ask you for more, right? They're going to ask you, like, hey, how many million dollar customers do we have? Because how many? Why don't you have 10 more? Why don't you have 20 more? Like, when's the next one? I mean, that's their job. They're just going to continue to ask that. But you have to run the company, right? Totally. You mentioned one thing that I thought was is super impacting us right now, and I want to hear how it's impacting your businesses, is the last eight, nine months, there is no more field sales, right? Like the biggest thing that's happened to us at Drift is that because we play in all those segments, in our enterprise segment, there is no field sales. There is no field marketing. Everyone's selling, selling digitally. But even companies who would sell those multi-million dollar deals who would never think that they could sell without a field sales organization, 100% in the world have been forced to do it right now. So that's a massive transformation. Like they thought they could never do it. Everyone in the world is doing it right now and there's no other choice. So it's interesting. Do you think they will come back to a field sales model and how is it impacting your companies? I kind of wish I was still at Oracle, to be honest. I I mean, this place, like from the inside, what we were trying to do was was evolve that business and be kind of rebel rousers and disrupt it. I mean, through a lot of M&A, through a lot of hires like me and others, try to like train and coach them on a different go-to-market motion. It'd be really fascinating to know how that's going for them inside. So yeah, so York IE, that's a good kind of, I can answer that in sort of the York IE context. So York IE, 
So basically we are a core is a, we call ourselves a vertically integrated investment firm. We are powered by market data and analytics. We built our own proprietary SaaS platform that today is internal that does market and competitive intelligence. Okay. And then we layer on sort of managed service modules for market product strategy, business growth strategy, and Marcom services. Right. So the general idea I had when I created this company was everyone was asking me, are you going to go be an operator, a startup guy, or are you going to go be a VC? And you've been asked this for your whole last 20 years, right? Like, what are you going to do? And I would say, well, I'm an operator, and, but I love investing and working they with entrepreneurs. It's a hybrid. Yeah, I want to do both. And then you're like, well, you know, Battery Ventures managing partner job is not going to let you do that. Or X startup that you fundraise for is not going to let you do that. And it becomes this like pick one problem that frankly was really pissing me off. So I looked at the landscape and I said, what type of modern sort of integrated company could I go build that could be incredibly disruptive to early stage venture, could be very disruptive to business consultancies and management consultancies, could be very disruptive to analyst firms, could be very disruptive to marketing and PR shops and downscope and scale using tech and automation for private companies and, and growth companies and bring our go-to-market expertise to lots of companies and how can I make that scalable? Like kind of everything I moonlit on, <laughs> how do I make scalable? And it didn't scare you to take to do so much at once. It did. I mean, it always, I mean, startup growth is scary, but like I was basically like, if I just go pick one of those areas and just yeah. raise a fund or just yeah. launch a new analyst shop or launch a new PR firm, I'll be an ant in a sea of thousands in each category. But my differentiation can be if I can figure out how to integrate this into one model and mm -hmm. one company, right? And so there's a lot of, of course, nuances to how to go do that. But that was in essence, my strategy. And you know this, but I mean, I am a go-to-market guy who knows a lot about technology. I know a lot about hardcore technology, but I can't even code like an HTML web page, right? Mm -hmm. So what I realized when I looked back at my two startups and even my role in Oracle, it's like, I'm really good complement to technical founders. So mm -hmm. That is very scalable to me across tens, hundreds, maybe thousands if I create IP and technology to automate and, and just deliver more value. Mm -hmm. So that's what we're building in New York IE. So when you think about our funnels, we have like several sales funnels. So speaking back to your question on the field and COVID, I treat basically our funnel as one big integrated funnel, like build a brand, you know how to build a brand, but build a brand super fast, drive as much traffic, eyeballs, interest, create as much content as you can, mm -hmm. stay in your lanes, but yeah. like grow the top of funnel big time. Mm -hmm. And then when companies or individuals get to us, they're either thinking, how do I invest with these guys, join our investment syndicates? How mm -hmm. do I pitch these guys, my startup idea and get investment? How do I talk to these guys about advisory or consulting opportunities? And then eventually, how do I talk to these guys about buying their product when we launch mm -hmm. it publicly to the market? Yeah. So, so when I look at it, it's really one completely integrated funnel. And I don't know if we'll ever have a field sales organization for that. Sure, we'll get to events when they come back. Sure, mm -hmm. we'll meet with partners. We'll do days in Boston, New York, the Valley, whatever, right? But at the end of the day, I don't think we're going to ever go back to that as our firm. You think Obviously, it's back in general? I think it will because will we're... Come back we're the same? Will it come back as hard? Like, what do you think? I, I think we're creatures of habit a little bit. And yeah. I think it's not like everybody who grew up in this sort of field sales model is all retiring. So I think it's gonna be more of a slower 
decay of the field selling motion and the top down selling motion. And even honestly, like the large ARR initial deal, I mm-hmm. think is going to dramatically change in, in SaaS and so in software in general, right? And even in hardware. So I think, yeah, I just think it's going to be more of a slow bleed. I think it will, it'll come back a little bit, but then I think it's going to fade away over the coming decades. Yeah, totally true. So one thing that we've been thinking a lot about that I've been talking a lot about, even internally, externally, is this kind of idea, which you went through, which is like, when you have these companies in growth and hyper growth, then and people there from the beginning towards latest stages, like that it's never people expect this kind of linear line, like it's just gonna be straight. And it's a constant game of like these, you know, Seth Godin calls it the dip, like you go through these yep. dips, plateaus, and then you got to rework and rework the team and create things and maybe create new products and resegment, and then you have another growth thing, and then you hit another dip. And it's always this game of this, but people have this kind of weird notion that it's always going to be like the same, like going yeah. down the direction, right? Which is insane. I mean, how many dips did you go through at Dyne? Oh, man, yeah. And, I, and again, I think now too, it's crazy because like I see it now across like dozens and dozens and <laughs> dozens of companies. And because of my, when I launched York IE, I had done 60 angel investments, yeah. right? 15 or so had exited, one had IPO'd, four had died. So I look at the active portfolio now, we've done 16 to 20 new deals in York IE, right? So there's like 60 active companies or something. Mm-hmm. And they're they're all the way back to when I started angel investing, like back when I met you, yeah. right? Like back then, right? So it's like, there's Fastly public company worth 10 billion all the way down to the guys still struggling to get like product market fit, right? So, so I see this every day. At Dyne, it's hindsight's like a wonderful thing, right? Like, I mean, I was laying on MRI tables back in 2014, 15, thinking I had brain cancer because of the stress and oh, the yeah. migraines. Oh, yeah, man. I, I like was getting Talk about migraines. That. Tell the people. Yeah, yeah no, we'll get, let's get back to that in a second. Let me okay. answer your question. But so when I look back in hindsight, it was always the dips, but it was, I can tell you why our growth rate accelerated or why our growth rate sustained or what step function growth we got in that year or that quarter or that month. And it's it's literally like I can plot it now and say, yeah. oh, that's when we won the big partnership with Amazon. Yeah. Oh, that's when we acquired Renesis and got an extra 8 million of ARR. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's when we launched our email delivery product to compete with SendGrid. Like literally I can look back at it now and say, that's the thing that worked. You and I both know whether it was strategic hires or a partnership or a new product launch or, hey, that's when we changed pricing and added 7% to everyone's renewal. <laughs> you know, like when I look back on that now, like there was 50 other things that year that we did that didn't work, mm-hmm. that weren't the driver of the kind of recorrection or the acceleration yeah. or mm-hmm. the sustaining of it. Right. So what I always try to help startups do is think of like the vision and where they want to go make sure they work backwards from that and their strategic planning, but also really know the knobs and levers of their business Mm -hmm. to manufacture growth. I mean, that's like, like I can remember one year we peaked at like 65 AEs. When we sold the Oracle, we had 45. We just overhired, we're inefficient as hell. And Mm -hmm. that was one lever we used one year because we we needed to power through as we were like launching a new service, right? Mm -hmm. So again, when you live that and you can then look back at it, mm-hmm. you can basically say, well, geez, like, how do you open up more knobs and levers? How yeah. do you 
focus 80 to 90% of the core machine of your go-to-market, but leave yourself 10 to 20% room to mm-hmm. try new things and innovate. And back to what we said at the beginning, be creative. And, and again, I don't think that's how most boards and most investors think. And it cripples entrepreneurs because they're too worried about that. Yeah. yeah that's why I talk about it so much, even internally. And just like, you know, we will look back and it will seem less painful than it was for sure. You'll forget a lot of the pain. You'll look back and think like, oh, this worked, that worked, this worked. But while you're going through it, you're just plotting along, trying and experimenting, trying to survive and trying to make incremental progress. And then it'll be obvious one day what worked, right? But like, we just remember when we tell ourselves these stories, but we forget of the pain that we went through and the stress and you having freaking migraines on an MRI table. Yeah. and Yeah. So I, I mean, it was like 2014 or 15, the board was getting pretty heavy handed. We were chasing down a hundred million ARR and they started to look at our executive team and like our average age was like 30 or something. And they're just like, they're like, where is the experience? And we're like, well, we had it, but it was like, it was a layer below our C-suite and it was kind of like, they were really pressuring us to kind of evolve. So we started recruiting new talent, new CFOs, new heads of sales, new independent board members and air quotes, (laughs) you know, and it was just, it just became a lot of, Yeah, it became a lot of pressure and I felt a lot of responsibility to the company's inevitable monetization, right? Exit, IPO, whatever, and a lot to the the customer base and Mm -hmm. to the employees. And I was struggling with whether I wanted to keep putting up with the BS, right? And I also like didn't come from money and and Mm -hmm. this is my real chance to make generational wealth defining capital. And I was scared to death. And the reality is by the time we sold the Oracle, I was like last of the Mohegans, you know, like everybody was gone. Corey left in like 13. Tom Daly left in 2012. Great China with left in 14. Jeremy Mm -hmm. left in early 16. He was still on the board and involved, but like, that was our C-suite. I I mean, even the Oracle LOI, like, like I almost puked It, it literally the first sentence said, Kyle York and other key holders must sign employment agreements before we exercise any definitive agreement. And it had like no one else named. It was just me. And I was like, oh, damn it. Like, you know, there's no there's no like pulling the ripcord and and running from this thing. I got to run this all the way through and make sure it's like foundationally solid inside. And yeah, so through that time period, my last all my other companies, I had pulled the ripcord right before. Yeah, I know you're you're a genius at this. But no, I mean I I I literally like during that time started getting migraines for the first time in my life. I was also like having kids during that time and I was on the road too much and everything about it. My kids are still little like it was just everything was like I felt like like I was losing control. And that's what I learned about myself is like it's not about controlling everything else around me. It's about controlling my own role mm-hmm. in all of it. And if I don't feel like I've got a handle on that, then it creates immense amount of stress and anxiety. And I don't think a lot of people talk about this these yeah. days, right? I mean, I just actually just was tweeting about this last night. Like a, a founder of mine asked me about seeing a therapist or getting a psychologist or executive coach. And it was really a fascinating discussion because my immediate reaction was, well, what do you want to talk about? I'm here for you. Right. And then I was like, what am I talking about? Like, like there's professionals at this, like, like, yeah. like you don't, and by the way, dude, you don't need it more executive coaching. You yeah. need like to talk to someone who's a professional in like the mind and the brain and oh, really? your go. psyche, like go talk to a professional therapist, professional psychologist. Yeah. Like yeah. this is not a coaching or mentoring yeah. issue. Yeah. You just need to talk. And so I think that's something that we should, all of us in the startup community yeah. should better encourage for people. 
I feel so strongly about that, you know, especially the thing about the executive coaching and mentoring and this, like I believe in mentors and stuff like that, but most of this is a psychological game. This is a psychological game, right? Like totally. And that's not only yours, but that then becomes your team psychology. It becomes the psychology of your customers. Like I wish someone would have told me that earlier. I spent all my time not thinking about the psycho my own psychology, but the psychology of this game, because that is the thing that separates it. Like from people who have started stuff and couldn't last or like quit. Most people will quit at the end yep, of the day. Right? So that's the similarity. I don't know anything about sports, but in sports and other things, most people will quit. And yep. there's very few people that will survive through it. I was just talking about this the other day. So it's also the empathy you gain as a leader by understanding like your own self and your own psychology and the psychology of your team. I think it's also like, we always talk about mentors and exec coaches and your board and you always like talk upward almost. Yeah. But like I always talk about loyalists, right? Like the more loyalists you create to you who mm -hmm. are in your camp and they're not, I don't mean followers or kiss asses. I mean, loyalists, people who like believe in your vision, believe in your leadership style, support you, your mantra will follow you anywhere. Those people end up becoming other people's mentors and then they develop their own level of loyalists. And so yeah. I love to talk about like the other direction of that. That I always react negatively towards is like when people try to rationalize starting a company and they try to talk to me, whether those are kids in school or like people in professional lives, when they try to like rationalize and compare it to something, I'm like, you should definitely not start a company because you're rationalizing, you're trying to make it logical, like it's a formula. And it's like, what will happen is you will quit. That's no, it's also, it's a complete DNA thing, right? You can yeah. sniff it out. You can sniff it out right away. What I was going to give you, I was going to give you a sports analogy back oh, yeah, I was me. just, I was just visiting Bentley where I went. Um, mm -hmm. And they hired a new athletic director and they have a new uh, the chairman of the board that I was meeting with. And it, it was a great meeting, but I told this story about how when I went to Bentley, I played four years of college football. Division two was never going to the NFL or anything, but I was, grew, up, grew up an athlete. You, you know, I mean, I got the shoe company, York Athletics, you know, I've, I've always been around sports. I've got yeah. four brothers, very competitive. When I went to Bentley, like the first day I was there, I realized I plateaued in high school. Right. I was like, I went to the, I went to the freshman orientation football yeah, yeah. meeting and I looked around the room and I'm like, good Lord, I should have retired. But basically there was 30 freshmen on the team. Right. Mm -hmm. And by the time we graduated, there was only 12 of us. And I played all four years. I lettered all four years, but I stuck it out. But the reality is everybody who played as little as me, you know, yeah. I was like a special teamer, you know, kind of yeah. garbage timer. But I also was the guy like representing the team on the student athletic advisory council at mm -hmm. the NCAA. And yeah. I was also the guy who was like the life of the party to the team and built the camaraderie and yeah. you know all that. And so I was always a leader, even though I wasn't the best player. And so a lot of people quit though. Like there was only 12 of us at graduation. There was like 32 that showed up there who are all good athletes who yeah. love sports. And I think that in hindsight, again, I look back at that time and I'm like, wow, like that, like perseverance, that resolve, that stick to when really I shouldn't have. It was know, logical. Is, that, that's why the logical gets me. Cause it's like, cause most people will quit because they will, at some point it will suck so hard that they'll be like, F this, I could go do something else. Why am I doing this? Why well, and in parallel, I was like, you know what, fellas? Well, some of you are going to go like do fake tryouts with the Patriots <laughs> and never make the team. Yeah. I got internships, <laughs> right? Totally. And I started working and I started taking the case study undergrad business case study yeah. curriculum and putting it to practice. Mm -hmm. And so it's like these same guys now in my late thirties are the buddies calling me going, Hey, you know, we made fun of you on spring break for taking the conference call. <laughs> I need some career advice. And it's like, oh, how do you like them apples, fellas? Yeah. <laughs> we got acquired by Oracle, my two best friends from college, Tim Beanie and Mike Arsenal. 
we're sales guys at Oracle. I mean, you imagine the gratification I have when I send them the press release announcement. Yeah, <laughs> and, then I'd, and then I just totally mess with them all the time when I'd meet like their bosses, 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 boss. And I'd be like, I'd tell them a story of college and they'd be like, you told them what? Yeah. Uh, this is the fun of it too, right? You have to have perspective and you yeah. have to have fun or else like you will not survive startup life. Totally. So to, uh, to wrap things up, I always want to end with like, are you reading anything? Are you learning? Like, how are you learning right now? It could be reading, it could be watching, it could be whatever form you want. Yeah, I mean, honestly, DC, <laughs> I always try to be the most prepared person in the room, right? So I am consistently, consistently reading basically everything I see or listening to everything I see. So I like don't have specificity to it, right? Like I'm I'm subscribed everywhere. I'm, mm-hmm. as you know, very active on social across LinkedIn, totally. Twitter. I also like, I'm talking all day long to founders and to yeah. investment partners and to later stage venture capital firms and to entrepreneurs like yourself. Like, I feel like most of my learning is through like my ridiculously jammed schedule of conversations I'm having with people. <laughs> one, one thing is like, everything's now a Zoom, which is annoying because I like to do the walking meeting. And so I keep saying, if it wasn't going to be a Zoom beforehand, yeah. Or it wasn't going to be in person beforehand. Don't make it that now. Just have it be a good old fashioned phone call. I don't do Zooms anymore, except when I'm doing something like this, a podcast, I do everything as a walking call. Well, like, I love your kitchen and you love my man room. So, you know, we should, after this thing, we're going to get some drinks together, right? You, man. It was awesome talking to you, Kyle. Thanks for joining us, brother. You too. Thanks, man. Great to see you. York IE, is that the best place to find you? Yeah, york.ie is the website. Please check us out, follow along, subscribe to the newsletters. You'll dig it. Also, we're at York Growth across all social channels, and I'm at KYORK20. All right. Hit up Kyle online, and remember what to do. Six-star ratings only. Go into Apple Podcasts, all of your channels, or wherever you're listening to this thing, and leave a six-star rating. Shout out Kyle. Follow him on social, and give him some crap online. (laughs) I love it. Love it. All right. Take care, brother. Thank you. All right. Cheers. Cheers.